gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You know, that's how I've done the intro for so long. I don't even know if that's the right way to do it, but um, it has a long tradition of existence. Uh, so, um, it is a special day. I'm at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia. Um, I have a speech, talk, whatever. It's weird. I don't know when this happened. We got a lot of business people who listen to this, so maybe they'll tell me. But at some point in the last 20 years, people stopped calling things speeches. Like, you go on a speaking tour, blah, 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 blah. But um, you give presentations. And people, you know, say, looking forward to your presentation. And um, I'd say maybe 10% of the time people will say, I'm looking forward to your talk. I don't think anybody has said, I'm looking forward to your speech in years, and to me. And I don't care. I mean, it's not like I have a lot invested in the idea that it's a speech, but um, it's just kind of funny how the, the, the language has changed underneath my feet. And I mean, I, I'm sure part of it has to do with the, the, rise, the perfidious rise of PowerPoint. Um, I think it was Steve Hayward who first said, um, quoting, paraphrasing Acton, that um, power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. I don't do PowerPoint. I don't I don't walk around the stage like Tony Robbins telling you to release the power within or anything like that. But I tell I tell some jokes, have a good time, provide some observations. It's more disciplined um and coherent than this talk right now will be. Um but I gotta do this quickly. It's very early morning. Sun hasn't come up yet because I gotta uh do more preparation. Then I gotta get the G file done which I worked on last night, which I almost never do, so I have no idea if it's garbage or not. And then I got to drive almost four hours to get home, to get home in time for uh, dinner time. So it's a, it's a hectic day. It's in a hectic week, a hectic month, hectic, hectic year. Um, so what to talk about? Oh, and I'm doing more travel in October, so we've been st- racking and stacking. Um, I actually think some really great episodes of The Remnant. Yesterday, I recorded... Three podcasts. I did the Dispatch podcast. I did an interview or conversation with Yasha Monk about his new book, The Identity Trap. And then I talked to Steve Inskeep, uh, host of Morning Edition on NPR. One of the nicest guys I've ever met. Now, obviously, don't agree with him on everything and all that kind of stuff. But he's just one of those guys that, like, when you're around him, you want to be a decent person because he just gives off this sort of decent vibe. Um, a little bit like Yuval in, like... I can't imagine telling a dirty joke to evolve within. I love the guy, but, you know, he's just, even though he's younger than me, but he's just one of these guys that, like, you know, you just, you want to be a better version of yourself around. Um, unlike Hayes, uh, or really Sarah Isger. So one of the things we talked about yesterday, um, I haven't, just full disclosure, I haven't gotten able to do a deep dive on some of the new stuff, which I have to do before this talk, so which is one of the reasons why I'm a little harried. Um, I do take these talks kind of seriously. Um, the border stuff, particularly this Biden administration thing about uh, 
how Mayorkas, the head of DHS, is waiving all of these restrictions on construction to build a big section of the wall, of a wall, or restore a fence. It was weird. I was listening to the news last night, and there was pushback by the White House that they're not really doing a wall, they don't believe in walls, but at the same time, they're still proceeding with this thing that Mayorkas um, is pushing, so i got to get to the bottom of that. But So if I'm not exactly up to the, the specifics of where the news is right now, I apologize, but you know, full disclosure. The thing is that I think about about it is, and I don't think I'm the first person to make this comparison, but they were, let me put it this way. So they were just talking on TV about how I was watching a little bit of Morning Joe and Scarborough was asking Peter Baker and that guy from the Council on Foreign Relations why the Biden administration has always been sort of off balance on the, on the issue of the border and of, you know, the problem with the migrant surge and all that. Part of their answer was, particularly Peter Baker, who I think is a good reporter, he's with the New York Times, part of their answer was that it's just not something that they are passionate about inside the White House. And it's not a constant con- constant topic of discussion or concern. I don't want to over-characterize what Peter Baker was saying, but this jives with some of the things that when I talk to Democrats about this stuff, it's a little bit like, and a little bit different, um, like Biden's age, you talk to some Democratic, you know, activists, strategists, uh, ex-White House people, they just, they think the issue of age, that of Biden's age is kind of illegitimate. I, now, twice now, people I've had conversations with uh, in the, at CNN have compared it to Hillary Clinton's email problem in 2016 which, you know, is just simply taken for granted among a certain cadre of, of Democratic, you know, activist types as being utterly illegitimate and a distraction and blah, 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 blah. I don't think her email issues were illegitimate. I think she, she did very bad things there. And the way she responded to those investigations and the way those investigations were handled were one of the reasons why the Trump era has been so... Um, saturated with whataboutism, and what she did was bad, was just affirmatively bad on the merits. But even if you disagree with that, even if you think it was an illegitimate distraction and not worthy of this great democracy and no reason to think ill of Hillary Clinton, as a political fact, her email problem was a huge political problem for Hillary. I mean, you, you can go look it up. She didn't win in 2016. I'm not saying it was all because of the email stuff. But if you go back and you look at like the Comey press conference and and all those other things, the idea that it didn't hurt Hillary Clinton significantly, you know, remember Trump only won in 2016 by, uh, with a swing of something like 68,000 votes in three states. I don't want to make it sound like it was those 68,000 people who did it. If 68,000, my recollection of the status, if 68,000 voters across three states, I think it was Michigan, Pennsylvania, and I want to say Georgia or Wisconsin, I can't remember. If they had not voted for Trump and voted for Hillary, Hillary Clinton would have won the Electoral College. And in a race that close, the idea that you're dismissing Biden's age problem by saying, oh, it's just like the Hillary's email problem, that's a real whistling past the graveyard kind of uh, response. So similarly, I think like there's an attitude among a lot of young progressive Democrats who are in the administration, around the administration, who are the TV producers and reporters that 
the young people have relationships with at the sort of left-wing think tanks that these people come from, that these people talk to, that these people socialize with. There is this knee-jerk base assumption that concern about the migrant surge at the border is nativist and icky and bad and it's not the problem that people are making it out to be that Fox hypes this and Fox does hype it but you know (laughs) so let's say Fox hypes it at a 10 when it's really a 9 or even an 8 an 8 or a 9 is a real thing in American politics you know something that is you know you know a huge crisis, you know, if a huge crisis, if, if, if it's perceived as a huge crisis by Americans is a 10 and it's an eight, that's a big deal. <laughs> and so it's not like Fox. I mean, Fox, I think, hypes some things that it shouldn't and in ways that it shouldn't. But the Fox News effect is real. And Fox's coverage of the border, which can get crazy sometimes, again, but is fundamentally legitimate. You can say it devotes too much airtime to it. But, you know, this is one of these things, you know, as you know, I'm a committed both sides are, this is one of these things that everybody deserves some blame for. Because no one, because other outlets cover it so little, and I'm not saying they don't cover it at all. I've been watching a lot of CNN now that I'm a CNN guy, and it comes up on CNN quite a bit. I've seen it on the NBC Nightly News. It's a real thing. It's broken through to the mainstream media, but it took a long time. But the less other outlets cover this kind of thing, It just makes sense that Fox would lean into it more because they have ownership of the story. So that, you know, it's the way the market stuff works with TV. If there's a sizable segment of the audience that is really interested in a topic and they can't find coverage of it anywhere else, they go searching for the place that covers it. And so the Fox News effect, which says, oh, Fox is covering this thing, it's not a real story, actually has the capacity and often, not always, but often tends to make the story bigger precisely because the mainstream media is not covering it. The simple fact is, is that the border crisis is a crisis. It's a legitimate crisis. It is a crisis from a progressive perspective, and it's a crisis from a conservative perspective. It's, first and foremost, an obvious humanitarian crisis. Um, It's also a profound political crisis for the country because there are few issues that more directly fuel the sense that the government is either incapable or unwilling uh, to deal with issues that large numbers of American voters think are legitimate and should be dealt with um, because of either ideological blind spots or ideological bad faith. And I'm not accusing necessarily anyone of ideological bad faith, but I think it's obvious and this is what Baker was getting at, is that they have a blind spot about immigration in the White House. There are a lot of young people who kind of cut their teeth on the issue. They're very much in the sort of either the Obama DACA tradition, or they are still, they still got a lot of adrenaline going from the Trump years where they convinced them, they internalized this idea that caring about the border was just what nativist demagogues do. And And look, there's a lot of things that Trump wanted to do at the border that I think were were grotesque and evil, at least if the reporting is correct. If the reporting about Steve Miller is even remotely correct, if the reporting from people like Miles Taylor, who I think, you know, 
is a, a decent guy, but he's kind of swept up, it seems, in the anti-Trump fervor to extent that I'm not always sure he's a completely reliable narrator. Um, but if, if the stuff that has come out about Steve Miller and that crowd and the meetings with Donald Trump about making the, uh, you know, making the wall sort of a medieval torture device and the idea of deporting, of separating families as a form of punishment, that stuff was really, really bad. But getting control of the border, even, you know, building a wall, that's a legitimate topic of conversation. And that's what the Biden White House has got itself stuck in. Anyway, so I was going to get into this metaphor or this analogy, and now I'm, I'm like 15 minutes into this. It seems to me that there's a useful analogy to the BP oil spill. If you go back and you remember when the BP accident happened, what year was that, 2010, something like that? That was the first thing that kind of punctured the cult of Obama among upscale New York Times liberals. I remember Frank Rich and a few other columnists kind of losing their minds about it. It was this thing that was just sort of, it kind of, it kind of took on this psychologically for a lot of people. It became kind of like the telltale heart where people couldn't sleep because they were just thinking about all that oil coming out of the ground and getting into the Gulf of Mexico. And they were constantly saying, Obama needs to do more. Obama needs to do more. Why isn't he doing more? Look, you know, I, I don't get accused of cutting Obama too much slack too often, but it was a hard thing to fix. You know, it was very, you know, the Deepwater Horizon wellhead or whatever that was, was very deep down. And simultaneously, the amount of environmental damage that was being done was much less than a lot of people thought it was. Um, you know, I, I very rarely get accused of having a great grasp of numbers in all that. But if you just look up the volume of the Gulf of Mexico and the volume of oil that was coming out, where there are oil seeps all the time, not, not that volume, it just wasn't the fire inside the, the, the nursery wing of the hospital that people kind of reacted to it about. But it was omnipresent and it got under people's skin and it was just this sort of telltale heart, tick, 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 tick in people's heads and it kind of drove them a little bonkers. I think there's an analogy to the border stuff. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, dehumanize the people spilling over the border. They're obviously very different things in all sorts of meaningful and important ways. Um, no one cares whether or not the mommy and daddy oil molecules lose their baby. Um, but at the same time, it is this thing that lurks in the backs of a lot of people's minds that vexes them. And, you know, it's in, in many ways, you know, like if you had the power to cap the BP oil spigot immediately and you didn't, the inability to understand why you wouldn't do it immediately sets, would set a lot of people off on a lot of wild theories about what could possibly be motivating you. Why would, why would someone choose to let that oil just gush into the pristine oceans day after day, night after night, 
the fallacy is, is that no one could shut it immediately, right? But if you don't believe that, then you just start going a little bonkers about why nothing is being done or more isn't being done. There are a lot of people who look at the people teaming over the border and say, we could stop that tomorrow. And we're not. So there must be a reason. And then they start doing walks down various theories as to the the reasons why. Now, I don't think we could stop it completely tomorrow or even the day after tomorrow. It's a similar fallacy to this idea that, you know, Obama could have just snapped his fingers and made the oil stop coming out. Biden cannot snap snap his fingers and make the refugees stop. Trump couldn't snap his fingers and make the refugees stop. He did slow down the rate of refugees, which is part of the point, is that something can be done, but you can't solve the problem overnight. But if you listen to people day in and day out, you know, on Fox shows saying, we know exactly what to do. You have lots of like border patrol union types and, and immigration think tank types. That's not entirely fair to the immigration think tank types. I think Mark Corian is one of the more sober-minded and reasonable dudes. He's at the Center for Immigration Studies. Um, but you get a lot of sort of MAGA, quote-unquote, expert types who say, we know how to do this. We did this under Trump. They're not doing it. They could do it. They just don't want to. It can drive a lot of people bonkers. And it's an understandable thing, right? And it's just every day, more people. Um, and then you hear Biden go up and say things that make no, that seem to have no connection to the reality of the situation that people see with their own eyes, I think it just undermines his credibility, admittedly with a lot of voters who probably aren't going to vote for Biden anyway. The thing that's interesting to me about it, even though it took me 22 minutes to get here, is how this is another example of the sort of confirmation bias and bubble thinking that you get among Democratic elites. There's a lot of bubble thinking, confirmation bias, all that stuff is a human problem. It happens across the ideological spectrum, but manifests itself in different ways in different places because different ideological groups have different base assumptions and they, their confirmation bias will confirm different biases. The world of the sort of progressive, Ivy League educated, um, left-wing progressive activist types has led them into these theories of the United States of America that can cause them to just ignore the most obviously politically advantageous courses. And, you know, and thinking that the border issue isn't this a particularly relevant issue beyond the need to give more of these people asylum, beyond the need to give more of these refugees shelter, is to me just so politically tone deaf. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing to me. I know I get, I hear from this, and it shouldn't be surprising if you just do the sort of math of it for two seconds. The thing I get the most grief for is my both sidesism. And the reason why it makes sense once you think about it is I have a lot of conservative readers. Not all of them are in the sort of dispatchy, remnanty space that says, the Republican Party is this profound disappointment that Trumpism has been bad. Some of them, and I'm grateful to them, you know, are 
much more accommodating of today's GOP, much more accommodating of Trump. I'm not saying that they love Trump. If you really love Trump, you probably probably aren't many true Trump lovers listening or reading me, except, you know, to punish themselves or to scan for ways to make fun of me. But there are a lot of people who are just more sort of mainstream Republican types who are more forgiving of a lot of the jackassery out there. And there are also a lot, probably not as many, left of center types who, you know, here for the Trump criticism or here to hear what they perceive. I'm not trying to like puff myself up. What they perceive to be like the traditional conservative critique of where the GOP is going. You know, it's, it's very fun to read heretics of the opposing side. Um, there's a great tradition of doing that. You know, that was one of the things that made Christopher Hitchens so captivating for so many people was his willingness to sort of hold some of the older standards of the left against the contemporary left of his time. And people dig that. So anyway, my only point is, is that there are people who are more committed to the conventional mainstream Democratic Party and committed to the conventional mainstream right now, alas, Republican Party who read me or listen to me. So when I say, you know, both sides suck, it pisses off both of them. And they think it's all false equivalents. What do, you know, a lot of right-wingers will tell me, why do you spend so much time criticizing the right? And a lot of left-wingers are like, oh, come on, you're just carrying water for Republicans to say that Democrats have anything to do with this or that the left is responsible or partly to blame. That's outrageous. You know, you own this. This is the party you build. This is the moon you build. <laughs> on and on and on. I get a lot of that stuff from both sides, right? It just makes sense, right? It does not deter me in the slightest in my conviction that a lot of the problems we assign to the left and a lot of the problems we assign to the right are, in fact, American problems that manifest themselves in somewhat different ways on the left and the right. You know, there's a tendency in, in, when talking about these things to do uh, a lot of guilt by association. I'm not saying that I am utterly without sin in this regard going back the last 25 years. But, you know, the, 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 there's a tendency and a temptation to, you know, what, what David French would call nut picking, right? But it's not quite the same thing. You take the radicals of the left, um, intellectual radicals, right? Um, who, and you say, you know, here's what Tom Hayden believes, or here's what Michael Harrington believes, or here's what Noam Chomsky believes, or here's what Herbert Marcuse and the Frankfurt School believe. And since the left all revere these people, everyone on the left automatically agrees with these people. And you can find the similar, you find similar arguments on the right, where you go find the most rabble-rousing right-wing intellectual types. You know, you'll hold up, I don't know, uh, Dinesh D'Souza and say, see, this is what they all believe, that kind of thing. Or since they're not criticizing D'Souza, they must agree with them because silence equals con consent and blah, blah, blah. And I, I think that that's something that you should always be on watch not to be doing too much of. That said, since we're talking about both sidesism and, and confirmation bias and uh, groupthink, there is a growing tendency on the right that, to, from my perspective, is remarkably similar to a, an older tendency that's still around on the left of just simply not liking America. Right? Of just being in a sort of fundamental, 
basic common sense way, anti-American. Um, I don't want to like signal boost the people on the right who are doing this stuff. But if you want to follow this stuff, you know, uh, there's this guy, Jason Hart, who is just this, you know, never met the guy. He's uh, on Twitter. I'm looking up his uh, Twitter handle right now. And yeah, it's just at Jason A. Hart. Jason A. H-A-R-T. He's just kind of like this citizen obsessive with craptacularist craptacular nature of the sort of new right MAGA uh, post-liberal some of them are you know some of the white supremacists the groypers the alt-right stuff and he highlights you know the to me dismaying uh, incestuousness of this crowd where it's not at the heart of the right right now but it's making inroads and alliances with all sorts of prominent institutions, you know, the Claremont Institute and the Heritage Foundation. It's not exactly the perfect hygiene of keeping these people out of their orbit. And you you read the stuff that he finds and reposts or screen craps, screen caps and stuff. And it's a lot of stuff about how they, you know, fundamentally hate America or as it is. They have weird notions about how it used to be great, right? That's a familiar argument. And it's terrible now. Um, and white people, sometimes in coded terms, sometimes outright, they just say it, need to reclaim America and a blood and soil kind of approach to blah, 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 sunny uplands of history, thousand year Reich, whatever. It's very depressing to me that this stuff isn't a career killer for some of these people. And, I, you know, you can call it cancel culture if you like. But I thought, you know, I think American conservatism was better off if you said deranged, crazy, nasty, offensive, racist things. It made it harder for you to move up the career ladder. Um, that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to defend. And it's not about free speech. It's about what institutions, responsible institutions, are willing to tolerate and not tolerate as part of their overall mission. Anyway, the thing that I find so remarkable is if you go back and you read, and I read a lot of that stuff, the 1960s and 70s, you know, radicals about how they hated America, disliked America, had contempt for America, contempt for liberalism, uh, contempt for the regime, all these things, and... Yeah, you know, some of the shibboleths are different, but the underlying mood is remarkably similar. Yeah, but if you, if you just go back and you look at, like, the way left-wing intellectual radicals talk about the United States of America, their, their base assumptions in the 60s and 70s, and even, you know, today, is so similar to um, what the radical right-wingers are saying, obviously, each side would prefer to replace the current system with a different set of elites and different rulers based upon different cultural assumptions and all of that. But the underlying radicalism of it is really the same. And, and remember, radicalism is not, has no ideological content per se. 
everyone friggin' uses the word radical as if it implies a coherent ideological agenda. But, you know, this is a point I've made often invoking Samuel Huntington's fantastic essay, uh, Conservatism as an Ideology. Um, I think it was 1955 or 57. Um, radicalism and conservatism are the only two sort of philosophical isms that um, have no inherent universal ideological content. And um, now I, I disagree a little bit with um, Huntington only insofar as in the American context, conservatism is something of a misnomer, but it is the label that we have traditionally used for the last, I don't know, 80 years at least, to describe a fairly coherent um, ideological point of view about free markets and limited government and strong foreign policy and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, conservatives like me will often say what the conser what American conservatism is trying to conserve are the ideals of the American founding. But that would support Huntington's point, which is that conservatism changes based upon the context in which it arises. A conservative in Portugal wanted to keep the monarchy, right? A conservative in the Soviet Union one of the most was was one of the hardliners that wanted to stay as pure to the Bolshevik revolution. So like a conservative in America and a conservative in the Soviet Union were in fact opposites. And similarly, radicalism is the desire, comes from the Greek for um, root, right? And it's basically to uproot the system from the roots, tear down the system, raise the system, uh, 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 grind it down to... Um, the studs, and then do something with the rebel. You could be a classical liberal Maoist China and have radical views about the regime because you want to get rid of the regime root and branch. But in a liberal society, a classically liberal society, a, you know, a, a constitutional republic, um, a radical is someone who wants to tear down constitutional Republican norms and replace them with something else. And um, in, in that way, you know, there are a lot of people who call themselves liberals and a lot of people who call themselves conservatives who are similarly conservative about the nature of our regime and how we want to preserve and extend it. My only point here is that the radicals of the right and the left, again, they may because they, they come from different tribes of elites, right? Different tribes of, they want to put different people in charge on based upon different assumptions when they're building their Shangri-La whistling zippity doo out of our asses um, utopia. Um, but they share the fundamental critique of the system. And what is interesting to me is how you see the convergence, right? The funny thing about horseshoe theory is that nobody ever accounts for the fact that people rarely stay put, right? If you're saying that, you know, look how the ideological line is bending into a horseshoe-shaped curve where the left and the right are so similar, people sort of implicit in the, in the, the image is this idea that the bending stops 
once it achieves horseshoe shape. But there's nothing inherent or necessary that says that the process that made the line bend into a U-shape won't continue until it becomes a circle. Right? And again, I don't want to get back into the weeds on this, but I used to be a big critic of horseshoe theory. I used to be a big critic um, when I was writing liberal fascism about this idea that, you know, the extremes meet. But the simple fact is, is that once you get people embracing uh, radical animosity towards their existing society and their existing regime, the line starts to bend like a horseshoe. And I think it continues to bend. You can see this convergence where a lot of the, you know, the, the self-declared radicals of the, and what is it, Compact Magazine? I kind of stopped paying attention to it, but, you know, they call themselves a radical journal of something or other. You know, Sorab as part of his journey is now like, um, or at least last time I checked in, you know, embracing Galbraith and various sort of left of center industrial policy, Keynesian economic planner types. Lots of people on the MAGA right are just as enamored of um, industrial policy and picking winners and losers and uh, managing the economy from above as the left has been for generations. And a lot of people on the left are as keen on protectionism and all this stuff as uh, the MAGA crowd is. My point is, is that like at the, when, once you become a radical, once you say that the up, foremost priority has to be quote unquote regime change, and I have to put scare quotes around regime change because everybody friggin' uses regime wrong now and it's just like exhausting to me. I've been pointing this out for 20 years, you know, so... The phrase regime change comes from a foreign policy, you know, argument that really goes back to the Clinton administration, but becomes, you know, amped up under the Bush administration because of the Iraq war. And the whole idea was you need it since Saddam Hussein was, um, what do the political scientists call it? A personalist dictator, which is to say that the regime and the man were one, right? It was arbitrary rule by an autocrat um, whose very utterances were the law, that the only way to save Iraq was regime change, which meant getting rid of toppling Saddam Hussein. Um, regime comes up in the American intellectual discourse, obviously earlier, most, most recently before that was what, what about 300 egghead nerd types, um, me included, were really interested in, which was the first things controversy. Um, this was, you know, whereas continuity where you need him, it was like 95, 96, something like that. And maybe a little earlier, maybe I was maybe a little earlier because I think it was in response to the Casey decision on the Supreme Court. But the editors of First Thing asked the question of whether or not the American regime could still demand the loyalty and compliance of people, given how it has come to accept abortion as a public good. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of it. They used regime correctly, right? They were talking about the constitution, the common law, the law of the land, the operation of government, regardless of administration, right? That's like the regime. Starting with the Iraq war, starting first with Democrats, and now it is an utterly bipartisan thing. People refer to the Bush regime. Regime change begins at home. Um, 
you know, DeSantis will often refer to the Biden regime or this regime and all this kind of stuff. And it gets at this, I think, fundamental misunderstanding of the politics of this stuff, which is, or the, the political theory of this stuff, which is that the Biden administration is the Biden administration. It's not the Biden regime. But because we live in this idolatrous age where, you know, Jay Cost was saying on this podcast that will be out next week, that American people effectively want to elect a monarch every four years. And I think he's fundamentally kind of right about that, and it depresses the hell out of me. Well, we kind of think, well, monarchs have regimes, so every new administration is a regime. It's not. It's just the wrong way to think about it. But anyway, the point I was getting at was that once you get this radical anti-regime in the proper sense of the term, right, the, the constitutional order, the liberal order, once you, once you say that's illegitimate and has got to go, because it's all really this deep state string pulling, you know, uh, globalist facade that is trying to keep us down. Once you're in that mindset, you just start grabbing the most convenient arguments and weapons at hand, right? You don't say, well, you know, these criticisms of the regime are historically left-wing. I can't use those. I have to only use right-wing criticisms of the regime. You throw, you know, hey, look, here's a bottle, here's a rock, here's a knife, here's a, you know, a cabbage. You throw whatever is near to you um, at the target. And why not, right? And so over time, when you internalize arguments for convenience's sake, they don't just stay instrumentalist things. They get into your blood. They get into your head. And I think that's one of the reasons why radicals of the left and radicals of the right sound more and more similar is just because they're happy to use whatever argument is near, is near to them. And over time, you know, those arguments, you know, uh, get into their bloodstream and change their thinking. Oh, the student loan thing. So I got into a spat with some people on X, right? Is that how we're supposed to pronounce the website formerly known as Twitter? This is just one of these things. It's kind of like when everyone kept attacking me about my, my position on small donors. Um, I just think I'm right, right? I, I'm not full of doubt on this. And I'm not trying to sound arrogant. There are lots of things where if you make an opposing argument that I hadn't heard before, I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And let me rethink my position and blah, 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 blah. It's just that I haven't heard a single argument about the student loan forgiveness stuff that makes me question my position. And my position isn't just sort of from theory, theory or, or principle or philosophy. It's from like just sort of the facts of the thing. And so yesterday Biden um, announced that he's going to forgive. And, and again, forgive me if I don't get all the details right. But he's going to forgive, I think it's $9 billion in student loans um, for uh, basically public sector workers. And I gather that some of it is, you know, for people who join the public sector as part of a path to pay down their debt faster and all this kind of stuff. The, the absolute loan forgiveness was not part of it. Otherwise, Biden wouldn't be bragging about how he's doing this. And, um, and some of them are disabled. Okay, fine. Let's have a conversation about that. You know, I don't need to be hard-hearted about various things. But you look at, like, the White House's statements on this stuff. Their official position is um, it harms nobody. I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing pretty accurately. Um, it harms nobody. 
and it's great for the economy. Like just at face value, you're like, what? So first of all, like, so taking money from Joe and giving it to John, obviously good for John, but how's it good for Joe again? And, you know, anytime, I'm not saying that there aren't, you know, multipliers, um, Keynesian multipliers and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, where you, you spend a dollar on some public good and you get a dollar fifty or $2 back in revenue over time. I think that happens. I think when tax hikes were, when tax rates on income were really, really high, lowering, the, the, La- the Laffer curve is directionally right. I just think at some point you're going to get all the real benefits out of lowering taxes to the point where you don't make more in revenue um, by lowering taxes any further. And I leave it to other people to, to argue about what, where that is. Um, similarly, I think it's absolutely true that if you get R&D right on some er- in some areas that the benefits are greater than the investment, there's a real return on investment. I think that happens. But the Biden administration's argument about the student loan forgiveness is just simply that it's it's just all multiplier and it's obvious and you're an idiot if you disagree and simply because we're picking people, we're picking constituencies to give free money to. And that's what debt forgiveness is. It's, it's giving people money. Um, I can do the math for you. But, you know, if I agree to pay three months of your, pay off three months of your mortgage or three months of your rent, um, I technically haven't given you money. But it'll sure feel like I gave you money, given how you, your disposable income has now gone up. It's giving people money. There's also a moral hazard of it because it encourages more people to take on debt. Um, it's also a function of the fact that we are subsidizing people to, to get pretty useless degrees. I mean, the worst offenders in this are the, are the, is the education establishment and the teachers unions where we, and this is not just a federal thing, this is a state and local thing too. We pay teachers a lot more if they go get a master's degree. The problem is, and a master's in education, mostly garbage. Um, there is now, I was talking to an education scholar about this. There's really no evidence that you get better educational results because you have one of these, you know, graduate degrees from an education school. Uh, state schools make money off of this subsidy. The teachers make money off of this subsidy. So it's going to be very, it'd be very, 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 very difficult to get rid of. Oh, anyway, yeah, so... It is encouraging people to get educational credentials that don't actually improve education is a waste of money. Um, And then forgiving the debt on those things without reforming the system that encouraged them to get it in the first place is just a Ponzi scheme. And that's probably not a Ponzi scheme. I'm, I'm suffering for the right analogy, but you get the point. It is all so unbelievably wasteful. And again, the thing that bothers me on the bigger picture, so I got a lot of grief for, for pushing back on some of this stuff. And, you know, one of the things I said was, you know, why stop there? I mean, if it's all, if it's all multiplier, right? Why not forgive all debt, right? I mean, if there's zero downside to forgiving some people's debt, what debt is there downside for forgiving? And a bunch of people went after me about this. And, you know, some guy was like, you moron. Yeah, it's not, sure, you think student debt is like any other form of debt. In fact, I don't think student debt is like any other form of debt. It's less deserving of forgiveness 
than some other forms of debt. And again, this is from a progress from a progressive perspective, both in the sort of economic uh, technical sense, right, about, you know, taxing people more as they move up the economic ladder, right, that's progressive taxation, but also as an ideological thing, it is profoundly regressive <laughs> to treat student loan debt as if it is uniquely deserving of forgiveness because of its righteousness, right? People who go to college, people who get degrees, make more money. People who have degrees have more money. Now, obviously, we're talking about a statistical thing here. There are poor people or, or lower income people with college degrees, to be sure, in part because they pick stupid majors and they get stupid degrees. And I'm not saying they're stupid because they're stupid in and of themselves, though don't get me started on some, you know, some majors. I think they're stupid degrees to get if you think they're going to, getting the degree will make you rich. You know, if you get a degree in social work, you should not be too shocked that you are not in the top 10% of income uh, of, of earners in the country, right? But on the whole, people with degrees have a greater hedge against poverty. They are more, they are, they are more prosperous than people who don't have degrees. It is still the case, on the whole, that investing in a college education or a graduate education is a worthwhile investment that pays off. Meanwhile, you have people living in trailer parks who are deeply in debt for their trailers. You have people who make a living driving pickup trucks that are struggling to make their, their loan payments on. You have people... And all sorts of, most of the, most of the, the most deserving people and where a lot of the debt is, the most deserving people with student loan debt are people who went to, I mean, we had Beth, Beth Akers on the remnant, go back and listen to her about this. It's people with less than $5,000 in student loan debt who went to community colleges. Um, there's an argument for, hel for helping those people out. I mean, again, I'm not a huge fan of loan forgiveness in general. I think there's real moral hazard to it, but if you're going to talk about the righteousness of forgiving, forgiving student debt, you can at least make a distinction between someone who's a quarter million dollars in debt because they have, you know, two MFAs in film and performance dance, you know, performance art or something, and somebody who went and got a degree, you know, associate degree from a community college, so he become a, a mechanic. But if you're just thinking about people who would be liberated from actual poverty or near poverty, you wouldn't pick student debts as the thing to forgive most. And you certainly wouldn't pick as what Biden wanted to do and I think still wants to do. You wouldn't go around forgiving the student loans of, you know, doctors and lawyers and MBAs. You know, what's the point of that? If people go to graduate school or adults who make real decisions and they and by the time you're talking about going to grad school, stop talking to me about how you're Horatio Alger pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Like you have a college degree, otherwise you wouldn't be talking about going to grad school. You make a decision to take out loans. It's your decision. Um, and it just feels like, you know, Biden is really, this is all rank politics. It kind of reminds me, there's this great line from H.L. Mencken about Harry Truman, where he said, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember it exactly, where he says, um, about Truman, if there were a sizable constituency of cannibals in this country, Truman would promise 
a pot with a Christian missionary for every single one of them. This is just, you know, constituency maintenance. This is this is an effort to sort of keep the narrative going that young people need to vote for Biden because he's going to forgive their student loans. And, you know, on ABC's This Week on Sunday, it's really just infuriating to me. They had a piece on what, you know, because I guess the Supreme Court case is coming, about what uh, lack of loan forgiveness, the promised loan forgiveness will mean to all these people. And they picked some very sympathetic-seeming, decent people who were addled with a lot of student debt. You know, I'm sure they're nice people, and I don't blame them in the slightest for wanting their debt canceled. I would like all of my debt canceled. If anybody listening wants to pay off my mortgage or the mortgage on my mom's house, which I'm now carrying, you know, please get in touch. I would think that I think that's great. You know, um, there's nothing wrong with people being in favor of, you know, their economic interests, even though, you know, I can't fully endorse it because it would be nice if these people understood that this is lawless and unconstitutional, what, what Biden wants to do. But I get it. You know, that's fine. Anyway, they did this piece on this week where except for like one passing rhetorical, you know, allusion to critics of the idea of forgetting, forgiving student debt from the reporter, they didn't talk to a single person who, who, you know, expert economist, anybody had a problem with the idea or could point to a downside of the idea. It was just purely these people want their loans forgiven and it's sad. It may not happen. That's not news reporting. I mean, that's just, that's, that's an editorial. It was really bad. It really made me angry. And I like Jonathan Carl and I like the guys at This Week and all that kind of stuff. And Sarah's on there um, and she does a great job, but oh, it was annoying. Speaking of annoying, as I'm driving down here yesterday, I'm listening to NPR and it was funny because I had just talked to Steve Inskeep and we kind of teased some liberal media bias stuff, but I didn't want to get into that. You know, I I'm not trying to gang up on Inskeep by, you know, saying justify your network's issues and all that kind of stuff. He was there to talk about his book. I want to talk about his book. I like him, whatever. But, um, but look, I mean, I, I've said it a million times and I'll say again, you know, despite my, my brief run as a house goy at NPR, I think NPR has got real liberal bias to it. I think it's just obvious. I don't think it's really debatable. Doesn't mean it's not a good news organization. And I think a lot of people, you know, one of the problems is a lot of people think that they just think the public radio station is means NPR. And there's a lot of stuff on public radio stations that isn't NPR. Um, and there's a lot of stuff on NPR that isn't from the NPR news division. And it just all gets conflated in people's heads. But even so, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, they're from the left to center. It's just obvious to me. And But sometimes they do really good stuff. Uh, but they did this piece yesterday as part of their climate change awareness week or something like that. That really pissed me off. And I, I meant to text David Folkenflik, who I'm friendly with, um, who's their media guy, because he was on it. They had their climate change reporter, their conspiracy theory reporter, and their media um, reporter. Folkenflik's the media reporter. I was heartened that Folkenflik didn't say anything too egregious, but it would have been nice if he had sort of chimed in to push back on some of this stuff. But the gist of it, um, I, I got to see if I can find the transcript. Um, the gist of it was that climate change skepticism of all pretty much any kind is the stuff of conspiracy theories and paranoia. There were these lines that the, the climate change reporter just said that just enraged me. I, I can't quote them verbatim right now, but the, the gist was sort of like, you know, for in the past, skepticism about climate change was paid for by the fossil fuel industry. 
Um, but now it's, you know, it's, it's gone into the fever swamps of social media, whatever. And they had these stupid things that Joe Rogan was talking about, about how they're going to turn this, there's this, this thing about, you know, there's this push among urban planners for these small walkable cities. I think they're called 15 minute cities or something like that. Where, where like you, you're walking distance to everything that you need within 15 minutes. Um, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of that stuff. It depends where you go with it and all that kind of thing. But I, you know, AI's Ryan Streeter before he left, they did a lot of work on this stuff and they found that like life satisfaction and, um, family satisfaction, all these kinds of things were pretty deeply tied to access to like sort of civic institutions like playgrounds and that kind of thing that were walking distance. So I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to all that, depending again on what you want to do with it. But, you know, on this Rogan show, they had clips about them talking about how this is, they're going to turn them into open air prisons and not let anybody leave because they're going to get rid of people's cars and blah, 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 blah. Fine. That's loopy, kind of silly stuff. But... They also said, you know, or implied at the outset of this thing that it is disinformation or misinformation to think that concern about climate change is overblown. That was one of the assertions that this reporter made. And another one was that uh, skepticism about renewable sources of energy, essentially misinformation or disinformation. Now, they claim that there's absolutely no evidence or truth to the fact that uh, uh, windmills on the ocean are killing whales. I didn't know that there was no truth to it. When you listen closely to what they were saying, they say there is currently no evidence for it. Oh, okay. That's different than saying it's not possible, right? It's like they don't know why these whales are dying. Some people think it's linked to these, these windmills. It may not be, but it doesn't automatically mean you're a paranoid peddler of misinformation if you think there's, there might be a connection that's worth exploring. Similarly, it, you're not a paranoid peddler of misinformation if you talk about the birds that have been killed by land-based windmills. But more broadly, like the idea, the, the implication from what they were reporting or what they were saying, asserting, because it's not reporting, um, was that uh, renewables are just working great. They're just great, you know, they're just working fine. And that if you're skeptical about them, uh, that's because you've fallen prey to misinformation or disinformation or that you're a conspiracy theory peddler. And that's just hot garbage. You know, I, I don't know, I haven't met any economists who don't think that there are real problems with the state of renewable energy right now um, at any, you know, at various stages of the line, the means of production, right? I mean, like lithium mining is gross in terms of what it does to the environment. It's also really carbon intensive as our, I just wrote about this last week. Electric cars are really carbon intensive. They depend also on really scarce resources rather than really common resources. Um, Similarly, like, you know, ethanol is a renewable. Don't tell me that I am peddling misinformation or disinformation when I say that um, ethanol is garbage government moonshine. Um, you know, when we bought this Sprinter van, one of the first things the guy who was telling us during our little orientation thing was, if you have to put uh, 
diesel fuel with high levels of ethanol in it because you're out of gas, just put enough in to make it to a gas station where you can get good diesel because Mercedes says that ethanol can ruin the engine. Um, when I was in Iowa, I was talking to some people about ethanol stuff, and even the boosters of ethanol were admitting that, you know, ethanol, or claiming, ethanol only makes sense if you burn your gas a lot, um, like, you know, if you're an Uber driver or a delivery guy, um, but if you just let it sit in your gas tank, it breaks down and can cause real damage. Um, um, disposal of batteries is a mess. Uh, you know, Japan, I was just talking to Pethokoukas about this, right? I mean, Japan went off of nuclear and tried to go on to other, you know, sort of more uh, on-brand versions of renewables, and it's been a disaster. Germany's experience of getting off of nuclear has been a disaster. Um, uh, you know, there are, they're just legitimate cost-benefit analysis things to, to say about all this stuff. And to insinuate that the sort of professional climate change industry has everything well in hand. They know exactly what they're saying. They're always honest. They never hype anything. And if you disagree, you're peddling misinformation or disinformation. It's just grotesquely irresponsible. And it's and, and just and just wrong. I stand by the fact that I look, I think climate change is real. It's something to take very seriously. But I, I've now made this case for 25 years or 20 that just because one side of an argument diagnoses a problem correctly doesn't mean, and I'm not saying they even diagnose the problem correctly, right? They've been wrong about a lot of their predictions, all that kind of stuff. But directionally, you know, fundamentally, the side that was saying there is climate change and it's a problem was right. I think so, right? Well, I know people disagree with me and I'll get a lot of comments about that. Fine, whatever. But that doesn't mean I have to, A, agree with them about the extent of the problem, or B, agree with them about what the, the, the optimal solutions are. Up until about five minutes ago, the vast majority of them rejected the idea of nuclear power, which to me, on just if you're just doing a pros and cons list, is the obvious substitute for things like coal. Just obvious, right? If, if your primary concern is simply reducing CO2 emissions and other sort of uh, greenhouse gases like methane and all that kind of stuff, then nuclear is like the obvious answer. But it was just ruled out by a lot of these people claiming that windmills and solar panels were uh, perfectly sufficient to the task everywhere and always. And that was just wrong. It was dishonest. I also think, you know, we're gonna, we are going to come to regret the aggressiveness of this push towards electric vehicles I'm not saying electric vehicles are necessarily not in our future or shouldn't be in our future or that they don't have benefits. They obviously do, but they also have real costs. The mad rush to produce them, heedless of where the actual battery technology is or heedless of the fact that you can't use the, the cheaper materials to make them, is it's just another one of Bastiat's broken window fallacies, right? It is a, it is, it's going to, I think we're going to look back on it as a huge waste of money and resources. In the same way, again, not to say that we won't eventually have electric cars. If we put all our money in jet technology, and I don't know what, 1943, that would not have been the highest best use our resources, right? You can, you can, 
you can see where things are going, but say, let's not spend everything on, you know, version 1.0 or 2.0 of this technology when there's every reason to believe with a little more R&D and a little more experimentation in the private sector, we can't have a leapfrogging technology that doesn't require raping the lamb for lithium batteries or whatever. It just, you know, you got to have a little patience and a little trust that the markets will figure out some of this stuff um, in due course. But anyway, the, the, the whole NPR piece really, really ticked me off. I think that's about it. I want to wait until, well, I mean, I, I, if I use this G file I worked on last night, it'll be in there a little bit. But I have some ideas about identity politics that are knocking around in my head that I want to talk about, but I want to wait until the Yasha Monk episode comes out. And uh, that's all I got. So um, I'll talk to you next time. I apologize for the slapdash nature of today's roommate. See ya.